There is no longer a discussion about whether remote or hybrid work will stay. The new question is, what do we do and what do we need to do to make it more successful? Sure, many companies adopted these working models out of necessity, and that leads to the now. Now there is a tremendous opportunity to redesign the rituals of work. Ashok Krish is the global head of digital workplace at Tata Consultancy Services, and he believes we are in a transitional phase of work where new routines and rituals are being established. A lot of new rituals of remote work had to be put in place. And I think that is the single biggest culture change that I think a lot of companies miss, more so than the technology. I think the technology, most large companies already had it. They just accelerated the adoption and rollout. We are still learning to work and be more productive from a distance. Companies are figuring out how to bring people together. Using thoughtful analytics and technological design, companies can create new digital norms that foster productivity and employee contentment. On this episode of IT Visionaries, Ashok explains how work must be reimagined with these new norms in mind. He details how new rituals must be designed and then incorporated, and he dives into how reshaping the old way of work can actually open up new possibilities. Enjoy this episode. IT Visionaries is created by the team at Mission.org and brought to you by Salesforce Platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Innovate fast, empower every employee, and scale with confidence from anywhere with a customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com slash platform. Welcome everyone to another episode of IT Visionaries. And today we have a special guest, Krish Ashok. Ashok is the global head of digital workplace practice at Tata Consultancy. Ashok, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks. Thanks, Albert. Pleasure to be here. Awesome. Right out the gate. For anyone who doesn't know, tell us what Tata Consulting or TCS does. Uh, And for those who aren't listening, it's a nice little small company, about 480,000 or so employees. Uh, and you you have a fun fact to it. That's just for the consulting group. Yep. I'd love for you to kind of tell us what is Tata, what is Tata Consulting, and where does your role sit in that organization? So the Tata Consultancy Services is an IT company. We are consulting IT business processes, uh, one of the largest technology companies in the world, as you said, with 480,000 employees, but about 50 years old, um, started in uh, 1971. And what's interesting is that uh, TCS uh, has sort of continuously grown. We're now a large company with you know, almost you know half a half a billion employees and so on. It's part of something called the Tata Group, uh, which is a hundred billion dollar multinational group that owns everything from Jaguar Land Rover, yeah, uh, makes salt, makes other cars, makes steel, um, has hotels, the Taj Group of hotels. You know, even the Ritz Carlton, and uh, I think in, in Boston is owned by uh, the Tata Group and so on. So it's a large multinational group with with over hundred group companies. Uh, so everything from salt to steel to IT, right? So it's it's one of India's largest groups. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and that th- they're about one hundred and fifty years old. Uh, they were amongst the very first industrial groups to start uh, in India and so on. My role within TCS is that I head the unit for digital workplace, and I wear two hats. One is that, I, that I'm part of the core group that thinks and implements the future of work for TCS. And I do the same thing for TCS's customers as well. So, so I sort of wear both hats. So you know all one, uh, 480,000 people in your, in your group, is that right? <laughs> I, very, very difficult, yes. 
<laughs> so tell us a little bit about what that means, global head digital workplace practice. What does that exactly entail? Because one of the unique things about a company of this size uh, in your responsibility is just the breadth that you have to cover, right? So you're not just covering, uh, I think I saw in your the company's LinkedIn that you operate in 46 countries. Yep. That's, you know, I would argue you have an employee in every single time zone of the, of the world, it sounds like. Yep. Um, yep. You know, give us an idea of what the breadth of that, that scope of role is that you have. So digital workplace, if you think about the market, the IT market's definition of digital workplace has historically been the IT part of the workplace, meaning that all the desktops and laptops and phones and networks and Wi-Fi, the equipment in your you know, conference rooms, uh, routers, and so on. So that's what it historically meant. Right? So distinguish it from the workplace, which is the actual physical workplace and the, ad, you know, the, the administrative facilities, the cooling, the, the air conditioning and the water facilities and so on. So digital workplace historically referred to that. But over the last decade, it has expanded into a larger definition that, that really talks about employee experience, meaning that every interface that the employee faces, you know, even when getting support, right down to swiping their car to enter an office, the, the cybersecurity operations that are required both the physical security as well as the cybersecurity as well, and the applications the employee uses. And by the way, employees are not just you know, people in offices. There are employees on the front line. You know, there, are, there are nurses, there are agents, there are retail store clerks. Uh, they access applications on their mobile device. So ultimately, it's all of this to sort of, as uh, companies have started moving to the cloud, employee experience has converged into what used to be historically a little bit of HR, a little bit of building facilities, a little bit of IT infrastructure into something that really focuses on employee experience as a whole. So that's what my role is. So how do you think of it and how do you approach it? When I talk to you, it's like, it's so big. The scope is yep. just so big, right? Half a million employees, 46 countries. Yep. You're talking about language barriers. You're talking about technology barriers. Um, we're talking about in, like core infrastructure barriers. Like, uh, I, like I know, for example, in countries like China, I don't even know if you operate in China, but like in countries like China, we do. You have to operate on servers that are in China. Like they do not allow data out. Yes. Um. So you're overseeing all these things. I mean, give us an idea. Like what, you know, I'd love to hear some of the stories. Like what's it like in some countries versus others, which you're, you know, of course, accounting for because you have to. Like that's that's your job. <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's an incredibly complex task. So the way it's actually historically we've uh, we've sort of gone from being very very distributed to a lot of decision making happening on the edges within each country, okay, within each place and so on, uh, to a period when we attempted to centralize everything purely for operational efficiencies, you know, like all companies do, right? But then the strategy was to decentralize again, and we were fortunate because I think that helped us during the pandemic because you know if you were centralized, I think the pandemic would have been really really bad for you. It had to be decentralized. Every country had to deal with it uniquely. Um, every country had to deal with, for example, all of a sudden, with about 24 hours notice, we had to move 97% of our workforce from office to home in a 24-hour period, which meant we actually had to <laughs> we actually physically had to transport desktops to people's homes. Wow. Because you know, and not everyone had laptops. Of course, now we're headed towards a world where everyone will have laptops and so on. But we had to sort of uh, do that overnight. And so what we recognized is that. Having decentralization in the right places is absolutely critical. And a lot of it obviously is sometimes country specific, but often if you really think about a place like India, it's very city specific because, uh, you know, we, so for example, the city I live in has 70,000 employees, almost 77,000 employees, right? That's wild. So it by itself is three, four times larger than some of the largest companies uh, in the world. And so the logistical challenge is just managing this city 
is huge. And so there is a central sort of a team uh, that looks, uh, somebody handles transportation logistics, somebody handles IT security, somebody handles procurement, somebody handles sort of support, right? So for, you know, what happens when somebody working at home, their laptop doesn't work um, and they need to change their motherboard or they need to change that. In the office, it's easy. You know, you, you raise a ticket and somebody walks over, yeah. you know, fixes that issue. Yeah. How do you sort of uh, do this? How, what happens if that employee loses connectivity? Right. And so on. What's their plan A, plan B and plan C for connectivity? So it's a lot of these things you cannot centralize because every city and every location has its own challenges um, and every city has its own set of lockdown rules. For example, some cities will say that you can you can bring 25 percent of your uh, people to the office uh, on these days and so on. Right. But some of the cities, you know, you're fine. You could bring them up in any time. So so it's also very now in, in, in the U.S., for example, we're starting to bring our people back into the office uh, in some of the cities. In some states in India, we're starting to bring uh, people back to the office. But this is going to keep uh, changing radically. But our you know, Southeast Asian operations, people in Indonesia or Philippines, they are still under lockdown yeah. and so on. So this is, you know, it's, it's a huge logistical sort of complex challenge, but it can only be addressed by a lot of local knowledge, but global sort of shared services in providing that scale, you know, when necessary and so on. Let's tackle some of these things, small, small pieces, right, to give, to give our audiences an opportunity to digest and try to figure out the scope of what you're doing. Yeah. You mentioned before, like how simple... The simple thing of like, hey, my keyboard broke or my motherboard broke. I need someone to fix my physical machine. Yep. That service is no longer available if you're not centralized. Yep. How did you handle that as you guys went back to, you know, remote workforce? Did you hire people to locally be on the ground within each radius to say like, hey, you're in charge of physical replacements, devices? And then did you have to give that person like storage? Like where's that person supposed to keep all their stuff, right? Because, and the other thing that we always take for granted in the United States, which is not true of other nations, which is United States, we often live maybe a single generation household with more space typically. Yes. But in Europe, Asia, it's typically a multi-generational household. It's usually a smaller space. Like yes. even in the ultra developed places like Taipei, Singapore, Hong Kong, the real estate footprints are very small. So you're talking and multi-generational. Yeah. So everyone's there. So like there's like there's 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 so many physical constraints that people, I think it's mind boggling to think about like what you guys had to now figure out, like, hey, how do we, how do we attack this? So here's again where the, the local uh, knowledge comes into play, right? So for starters, one of the fortunate things we did about a couple of years before the pandemic was to move everybody to a cloud workplace, uh, workspace in the sense yeah. that your desktop or your laptop wasn't just physically residing on that hard disk, meaning that there was, there was always a copy on the cloud, meaning that you weren't tethered to that, that machine per se. Right? So what it allows, allows us to do is that when you have a problem, when you're stuck at home, the complexity of sending someone to fix that problem is just not going to work right? because that expert can come and what if he can't fix it? It just doesn't work. So the only way to do this is to simply just re- replace your machine with something new that you can just continue working while we'll take that back to the office and you know, figure out what to do. <laughs> you know, it varies. right? So sometimes if the associate is able to come to the office to hand over and take a new laptop and just leave, you know, with the necessary masks and the, the temperature tests and all the rest of that stuff. And in some cases, we have to arrange for some kind of delivery. Thankfully, in, in many places in India, the delivery ecosystem is, the, the Uberized delivery ecosystem is huge, right? So there are multiple companies that we sort of partner with. So those guys will come, hand over your new hardware, take your old hardware, drop it where it needs to be dropped. And that's all that guy does. And so it's a mix of things. So there's no one solution. So it has to be very local, very locally determined. And it also, so historically, you know, we would procure centrally uh, to, for optimization and so on. So you know, all of that had to go out the window. We had to procure, start procuring locally and making sure that, you know, we use whatever supply chains are available. 
given the global chip shortage, as you might be aware, yep. that it's not easy to easily get a new laptop, um, even for enterprise use, because there is a shortage of chips in general, right? So it's a lot of those kinds of things that we had to do a hot swap out. And what, what also helps is the fact that we use things like Microsoft Teams, where everybody is able to real-time collaborate. Sometimes, you know, for less serious issues, the idea was to enable significant amounts of self-help or do-it-yourself, right? And that, that is a critical part of the, um, and enterprises often find that very hard to do because the natural sense of how you think about IT infrastructure is, I'm going to give you all the same unusable, completely locked down, you know, uh, Windows laptop that's terribly slow, has tons of sort of, you know, <laughs> software running on it to encrypt your stuff and all those kinds of things. And I will not let you do anything. So <laughs> at the slightest problem, you have to reach out for. So I think, you know, we had to sort of be creative about in what situation uh, will we take remote control and fix a problem versus in what situations can they associate, fix the problem themselves and get help. And sort of real-time collaboration, the, the adoption of you know, almost you know, uh, half a million people using Microsoft Teams and being able to video conference on demand, um, I think that also make, sort of made a big difference, if you will. Yeah. So talk a little bit about that, because when you have that type of scale, there has to be some level of standards. Otherwise, it's impossible to communicate, intercommunicate. Yes. And I'm sure you have teams that, let's say, get reassigned projects. Even, even something as simple as that, like, let's say I'm working on a project here in America for an American company, but I get reassigned to a company that's working in Europe so that I got to work on a Euro European project. I don't have to move, but of course I need access to the same toolkits that they have. Yes. Is that where your office takes place where it's like, hey, we're going to decide these are the things that we standardize on centrally where all half a million people have to use this. And then locally, do you allow people locally to procure services that fit their projects? Or do you say, no, we do this type of project management. This is type of communication. So you're right. So what happens is that, so there is a TCS standard set of tools. You know, everybody yeah. gets a TCS email ID. Everybody gets, you know, used, gets to use Microsoft Teams and so on, right? What happens is that individuals are then allocated to a project, which is for a customer or a client of TCS. And these are typically Fortune 1000 companies. Sure. So they do not allow people to randomly buy pieces of software. So what happens is that people working for a customer, they have to use the customer's collaboration ecosystem, you know, their tools. <laughs> That's <laughs> what. So, uh, so almost everyone has to juggle between both. In the sense, there are times when they are in the customer's environment virtually, you know, on their you know virtual machine or a, or a VPN connection, if you will, and then they will switch over to the TCS just to see what's happening, right? You know, what's our CEO saying and what's the new strategy and you know if there are any lockdown things that I need to do, fill my timesheet and those sorts of things. They have to virtually log into our network, yeah, uh, securely to do that as well. So that's that's something that you know people uh, have to do. But yeah, but the idea is to have one standard for across CCS. And then for those who have to constantly switch between customer and these kinds of accounts, we use a setup that's far more lightweight so that it doesn't become like two heavyweight things trying to you know, sit on that person's laptop and so on. So it's a lot more lightweight. And for example, some, some employees actually access the TCS stuff only on their mobile device. Really? Or only within the browser, you know, so that they don't have to you know, install or use a heavyweight operating system on their laptops or desktops uh, to access that, right? So that they focus on the customer's environment and then they're, they're able to access the TCS stuff either on the browser or on a mobile device. Now, one of the things you also mentioned was how your role advises your clients on what they should implement. Yes. So I guess, how are clients coming to Tata regarding, and what, what are they coming to you for? What problems are they presenting to you? And what are some of the challenges they're uniquely trying to solve that maybe you have domain experience that other people just simply don't have due to the size and scale of your company? So if you think about it, see, actually the... Digital workplace services 
as a large umbrella of services that we offer is everything from us managing another company's entire IT environments, including their desktops, their end-user devices, their mobile devices, their routers, their conference room systems, their Microsoft Teams setup, uh, their applications, if you will, right? And including, now since we have a design studio and so on, including even designing and implementing things like their intranets, uh, their knowledge management systems, and so on. So we're, we're very deeply into that. So in fact, my group actually does all of this for customers as well. So TCS offers us this unique opportunity to sort of eat our own dog food and be able to tell others that, look, we do this for, you know, half a, half a billion employees. So trust us, we know exactly uh, sort of what we're doing. <laughs> so what happens, I'll tell you some unique, so Manpower Group in the US, right? So, you know, they provide sort of staffing solutions to a whole range of things, right? We help them switch, you know, 98% of their workforce to work remotely, you know, when, when the US went out of lockdown and so on, right? Including some of the largest, uh, there's also another. So what happens is that in these situations, One distinction is that TCS, for example, largely has employees who are knowledge workers. I would argue that all employees of TCS are knowledge workers. In that they're all people with laptops sitting in either an office or at home and so on. Other companies, uh, particularly, so say people in say hospitality, people in in manpower group or in in industrial manufacturing settings have either a blend of blue collar, white collar workforce. And historically, the blue collar workforce or say the plant workforce or the frontline workforce was rarely served by IT at all. Yeah. Uh, because they were, it was considered to be too expensive and so on. So they, so in fact, you would find that in many companies, uh, employees uh, who did not have access to these kinds of sophisticated IT systems and all collaboration tools would use WhatsApp or Facebook Messenger to collaborate. Yeah, it makes sense. Because if I'm in the field and I need to talk to you and when I'm, I'm literally across the factory, I'm not going to come over and say hello. I'm just- <laughs> <laughs> like, hey, exactly. Hey, hey, exactly. what's going yeah. on over there? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And interestingly, the, the pandemic forced companies to rethink how important frontline employees were. And we saw this around the world, right? All of a sudden, many of our assumptions, one is the fact, one is this assumption that we all have to be in the office to be productive was broken. Okay. Right. It turns out that a lot of productive work could be done. There are things that you do need to come back to the office, collaborative creativity, and we, we can kind of talk about that. But I think most companies, what they realized uh, was the fact that their frontline employees were their most critical and underappreciated and under, you know, they, they were underserved from a technology standpoint, right? So if you're a, a frontline healthcare workers, uh, frontline workers in retail in critical sort of uh, situations around the world where shops had to be kept open and so on, grocery stores had to be kept open and, and so on. Sure. So many companies and our, our critical manufacturing, uh, manufacturing essential goods, so those fi- workers had to come to the factory well before the, the vaccines uh, you know, came and so on. And these, these essentially meant that companies really thought about, had to think about, were forced to think about enabling this frontline worker. You can actually sort of see a lot of the technology companies like Microsoft now saying that frontline workforce is our focus because you know, honestly, they have every other customer already. Frontline is the new sort of frontier for them, right? Yeah, there's also more of them. Yeah, exactly. There's more of them, absolutely, yeah. So talk about some of the things that you mentioned there. Like, what, did, what else did you discover? Like, I agree, frontline workers typically are mission critical. What were some of the things that were largely ignored that became clearly evident when all of this shifted? So one is the recognition that, bizarrely enough, more companies, most companies were technologically ready to enable remote work mm-hmm. because they almost always had, they had laptops, uh, they had VPN setups. Most organizations had at least up to say anywhere between a five to 10% of their workforce that was always on the field, that was always working remotely. You know, sales guys working in one country without an office and so on. Yeah, yeah. So all companies always kind of knew that. The only difference was that they weren't ready 
for a situation where 95% of your workforce had to do this, right? Yeah. And so the, the critical learning is the cultural aspect of working remotely and collaborating remotely was a huge problem for most companies. What they recognized is that collaborating in person and collaborating remotely are entirely different things. And if you're a small startup and using Slack and tools like these, you know, day in and day out and you're working remotely, sometimes from home, all of this is natural. And plus, by the way, the way you allocate work in a small startup is that an individual tends to own a lot of things yeah. and handles multiple things and so on. So they have a span of control that allows them to operate independently in a way and doesn't actually require too much coordination. But large organizations require tremendous amounts of day-to-day coordination. The cost of collaboration is very, very high, which is why in-person work is very, very important in large organizations and so on, unless they had to build a culture of working out loud. And that is something that we really recognize that you, it, it's not easy. Uh, most employees don't know how to work out loud. So when, when you're working remotely, you are not ambiently aware of what's going on in a way that you are in a physical workplace. You kind of know what's going on, what other people are, well, uh, you know who the expert is, you can reach out, you can get help, your boss knows what's happening and everybody's you know, in the stand-up meeting and so on. When you're remote, you don't quite know that, right? And so creating, so there has to be a uh, sort of, shall we say a deliberate intention on both sides, employees have to constantly keep broadcasting what they're doing. You know, information has to be public by default and not private by default. Like when you're in the physical office, we all went to the room and then we shut ourselves into cubicles to get ourselves privacy. Yeah. Uh, and we said these yeah. are the emails and where emails are private by default, right? And the new world, when you're using a tool like Microsoft, you know, a Teams or Slack, information is public by default, you know, within your team and so on. Yeah. Uh, people have to get used to it. And again, uh, if managers need to think about management fundamentally differently, at least mid-level managers, uh, if you are an extroverted person used to empathizing with your team in person, in many situations, you actually struggle when you have to deal with the remote team. What I found is that within my larger organization, introverts made, made better remote managers uh, <laughs> because they were happy to chat. They were happy to chat, you know, one-on-one, uh, stay in touch with people without having to see them yeah, face-to-face yeah. Um, and so on. So there's a lot of new rituals, if you will, of remote work had to be put in place. And I think that is the single biggest culture change that I think a lot of companies miss, more so than the technology. I think the technology, most people, most large companies already had it. You know, it just they just accelerated the adoption and rollout of it, if you will. So I'd love to hear your perspective on how to keep things important because signal to noise ratio becomes, when you're in remote work environments, becomes a big problem. Yes. You mentioned before. Like, let's use a big organization. I'll use my example of Coca-Cola because I used to do some work for them. Yep. So Coca-Cola, even in North America, not only was it split by, of course, role, like the salespeople, the retail sales, field ops, like everyone's bottlers, like they, everyone's split into their role. They're actually split by brand. So like, if you and me were in Sprite, like we literally did not know what Coca-Cola was doing. Like we like only focused on Sprite. Yep. How do we sell more Sprite soda, right? Yep. And then each country, each country at Coca-Cola, they had their own line of business. They had response for Coca-Cola sales in their country. And they, of course, the same thing repeated itself. They had a marketer, they had people in ops, bottling, it goes on and on. Now, the challenge with open communication, like you said, work out loud, is a lot of these things are irrelevant to many people. Exactly. Right? So, so how did you start thinking about, how did your company start thinking about, like, how do we prioritize and make sure that people who need to know get to see it? Because you can easily be in it. I mean, I, we work at a mission is a company of less than 20 people. Like there are times when Slack is so loud, like I turn it off because I'm like, I need to work. Oh, yeah. And that's 20 people. So you got half a million people. Yes. What is the philosophy on getting important information to the people that actually need to know it? 
So I think we we started out like everyone else with utter chaos, <laughs> meaning that everything was too noisy. Um, and then we started slowly sort of, uh, we used a lot of interesting data actually. So I have a behavior sciences team that kind of looks at employees' behaviors across different groups, compares data, and then tries experiments. We do A-B testing to see what kind of communication works or is paid attention to versus just completely gets lost or, or the notification doesn't get read or that email gets deleted and so on, right? So we work with HR to slowly point, look at certain patterns. Uh, a first pattern was obviously, we knew that we had to, there were some teams, uh, some departments where the average number of hours in a meeting in a week was upwards of 30 hours. Okay. In a work week, uh, some people were spending more than 30 hours in meetings. That was just causing a phenomenal amount of stress. I mean, if you're just sitting in meetings and we really found out why were people sitting in you know, Zoom, you know, video conferences and status meetings in the entire week? Because I think when you don't see someone, sometimes managers tend to overcompensate by constantly wanting to know what's happening. So they keep calling for meetings. And if you're on a you know, multi-stakeholders, every stakeholder wants to call a meeting to find out what's going on. And then their bosses, and then you'd have a situation where managers don't trust their direct reports. So they sit in on meetings of their direct reports, direct reports as well. <laughs> so when we observed all these patterns and we kind of knew that you know, we had to do a couple of things. One is to say, can we make the default meeting length 15 minutes and then force people to think whether they needed you know, 30 minute or 45 minute or one hour meetings uh, for starters, right? This was just a sort of a configuration thing that you could do in Office 365 in Outlook to try and sort of nudge people. So one philosophy that we regularly used is this idea of digital nudging, right? So can I use ways of digital nudging people into certain kinds of behaviors? So the other one was sort of uh, corporate communication. You know, they wanted to send so many emails because they wanted to continuously communicate with all these people during the pandemic and so on. So what we then created was a sort of like a one TCS uh, bot, but it has some, it's throttled in the sense that you can only send up to five messages a day or something like that, right? Mm. So you really, you, you force yourself to prioritize and think, right? We need that. <laughs> Everybody needs that. Everybody, okay, this is the great. Keep going, keep going. <laughs> so, and it was hard. HR said, no, 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 I have, so the point is that if everything is important, nothing is important. Yeah. Nothing gets through, right? And so this was really, so we had to bring designers and behavior scientists to say, no, people will not pay attention. So you have to cut it down. And so the other thing that we had to encourage was uh, for you know, department leaders and people who oversee thousands of people to stay more in touch by, by doing regular town halls, but not one hour and two hour town halls, but TED Talk style, you know, 10 and 20 minute mm. town halls, because people, do, people don't have the patience. And we encourage them to say, that don't just do one way, right? You know, Teams allows you to uh, allow people to ask, give feedback and ask questions. Do that. I, I think you know, it, it, far more people are likely to participate and listen to you if they're allowed a voice. So don't just do one-way conversation, make it two-way uh, and so on. And sometimes, you know, this is, for example, in, in certain cultures in Asia, you have to deliberately tell people that you have to do this, right? Because they're not naturally two-way communicating things because a high power distance and hierarchies, a sense of hierarchy and so on. Oh, I will not question my manager yeah. sort of thing. And so you have to deliberately do this. And so the senior leadership CEO onwards had to start setting an example. They did start started doing more live uh, video, uh, putting themselves out there and saying no censorship to questions, ask me anything and so on. And had teams answer all those questions and so on. So creating that culture where there's more, you create that ambient awareness that you would otherwise miss in a, in a, in a physical office, right? In water cooler conversations um, and so on. So this is, this is one thing. The other thing that we kind of uh, also realized is to pay close attention to how people are spending their time in a sense of, you know, so we, we ran these workplace analytics tools to find out how many people were 
responding to emails and attending meetings well after office hours, mm. right? After 6 p.m. or 5 p.m., right? Yeah. And then really start looking at seeing where are there stresses. So if, if a lot of people in one unit are spending time after 6 p.m., then a note goes to HR saying, you might want to reach out to people and find out if they're well, if they're stressed and so on. Because, you know, in a physical office, you can kind of see when people are stressed and so on. And now you can't. And so it, it became, uh, HR actually ended up becoming a case where they have to individually start reaching out to people and asking them how they are. And so they even had to do that because we also had to go through a situation where a lot of employees went through, you know, getting COVID and then recovering from it and so on. So there was anyway that constant need to stay in touch to coordinate things like vaccinations and so on. So that now we recognize that HR simply is not a group of people that can sit and talk to. So HR as a function has to be distributed amongst immediate managers. So I kid you not, we had to tell managers that please do one-on-one conversations with all the people you uh, report at least once, you know, once, once in a couple of days, not talking about work, but just finding out how they are, are they feeling fine and so on. And it makes a tremendous difference. But the thing is that you don't have to tell people to do this in a physical office because we're human, you know, it's, yeah. it's, it's natural, it's social and so on. Yeah. It's easy for me to see like, how are your kids? Exactly. Right. Well, how was your weekend? Easy. Exactly. This is easy. And it's not. You don't have those uh, you know, canteen uh, coffee conversations and so on. And so you're not ambiently aware of your team. And so you do have to pay attention and do this, right? And so it's, it's just a lot of these kinds of things. Uh, uh, other things being, say, status meetings. I would say half of the category of all meetings are people coming in to say, here's where I am. Here's where I'm stuck, right? And where are things going? So for a manager to know where things are. A status meeting, a stand-up meeting is, is like the most common category of meeting, if you will. And so what we decided to do is to start integrating some of these tools, standard tools, you know, Jira, these other things into Teams so that before people get into a status meeting, you know, the status is visible to everyone. So you can keep your meetings shorter and sweeter. Ideally, we should have done this even when we were in a physical office searching for a meeting rooms, you know, which were never available because everybody wanted meetings and there were fewer meeting rooms. Yeah. <laughs> but now, now we know better in the sense that we know how to run a meeting much, much more smartly make more data visible to more people and you wouldn't need your meetings to be that long because people can just discover what they need to discover and solve their problems independently and only get to a meeting to discuss the most important things. So what I would say is that it's a continuous sort of discovery and it's not centrally done. I think it was each team would do their own thing and it would work and it would show in the fact that they're they are spending fewer hours in meetings after 5 p.m. They would show higher degrees of employee satisfaction. They would show lower attrition rates. So there was data visible for us to see, you know, hey, you know, which of these strategies was working and then, you know, sort of promote them, you know, one way or another. No, that's pretty fascinating. The one theme that kind of is repeating itself uh, through all the initiatives that you've done is this idea that you have to very much so be deliberate, but also focused and cut out it's constant like paring down of noise, right? You're yeah. only allowed to send five messages per day. Yes. You want your default meetings to 15 minutes. Yes. So constantly thinking like, how do I present more information, I guess, up front or in the open, as you suggested? Yes. Uh, it's got to be seen by the people who need to see it, of course, so that they can come in with more clarity, if you will, an understanding of what the purpose of uh, an assignment may be. I'm curious, why is it that you think that, you know, you you found this out for Atata, which is a huge company. There's a lot of companies that are, you know, I, I know everything's imperfect, so I'm sure there's certain people at the company will probably raise their hand and be like, this doesn't work for me, but that's fine. But why do you think, why do you think the default is for companies to over-talk, over-meet? Oh, you know, like you mentioned before, like it's, there's a level of distrust, but like I'd love for you to, because you've helped other companies do this too. Why is it that people want to, let's say, over-meet? 
And by the way, a lot of meetings tend to turn into status updates, which is like that easily could have been written down. That's that's I think the number one thing people complain about is like they say meetings that should have been emails. And it certainly will go that way if your meeting is a status update. Hey, I'm doing X, Y and Z. OK, that's great. But I, <laughs> no information for me was relevant. Um, but yeah, I'd love to hear your perspective on why. Why did we as humans kind of default in that behavior? I think it's it's I would say it actually it's a it's an outcome specific to large complex organizations. Um, and I say this for both large private enterprises and government institutions. <laughs> so it's any large group grouping of people with a complex task and a lot of people and a lot of departments and a lot of, shall we say, uh, a way of dividing work sure. that sorts of has advantages in the sense that you can, you can break down complexity into small pieces, to small manageable pieces, and be able to do that with not necessarily extraordinarily skilled people. So, so the whole few, the history of the organization has ultimately been the ability to do ultimately complex tasks by breaking them down into simple enough things that not very qualified people. Yeah. Uh, because very qualified people are very expensive at the end of the day. Right. That's right. Yeah. So, so that's historically been the history. Right. But I think what has happened is that we've, so I always keep saying that most organizations carry something of a skeuomorphic bias towards the past because change is indeed hard. And the example that I often give is just, the example I give is very shallow, but it actually goes deeper. So just take a look at our email systems, right? Sure. You know, your your email has a send button that's an envelope. Most kids don't know what an envelope is. (laughs) Uh, There's something called a carbon copy. I don't think any millennial has ever seen a carbon paper in their lives. I remember that back in the day with the slider for the the, uh, credit cards, you hit the slide and you get this little carbon copy and that was yours. I'm like, what is this? Am I going to save this? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Right. So the point I'm trying to make is that if you think a modern day collaboration tool uh, that has continuously evolved like email still uses visual language that is rooted in the 1950s. Your email is literally just the digital equivalent of an office memo system that used to have actual tubes, actual in trays and out trays, which is why we call them inbox and outbox. And it was actually physical human beings who would carry those trays um, and take carbon copies and put them on whatever table, right? Into the inboxes of people's tables and so on. Yeah. So it is that that just became email. My point is that uh, even enterprise decision-making styles, processes, all of them, if you really dig deep, they are rooted in some of the, shall we say, the metaphors of the past. They don't necessarily completely, then it's very hard to design a process from scratch. So if you look at some of your claims approval processes or finance processes or any of these things, what you'll often find is that there is something there that hasn't changed since the 1950s. And yes, all that's happened is that there's a computer in between, there's a scanner in between, and there's a mobile phone in between. And there's an Excel Excel spreadsheet somewhere in between. But a lot of the fundamental things haven't changed. And if you really look at all of this, what happens is that even human beings, they we pick up a lot of these cues about the fact that when you need to know what's going on, you need to see people face to face. That I cannot trust an email that they send or an update they post on Jira or an update they write on Slack. You said, I need to see them face to face. If there's a crisis, I need to see them face to face. And so we we kind of implicitly grow up believing this and we end up saying that I need a meeting for everything. <laughs> and it over time, it's just everybody just wants to meet for everything. And there's just no office rooms. We had, I mean, before the pandemic hit, the single biggest scarce resource was meeting rooms in every office, right? Um, you would sometimes, you would actually, companies would waste millions of dollars because five people couldn't meet in the next one week. And that they had to get, synchronize their calendars and meet five weeks down because they had to synchronize their calendars and also find a meeting room. It's ridiculous now that we think about it that it should have been easier for people to meet virtually. Now, what is good is that once we head, head back to the office and work in a hybrid mode, 
hopefully we should be smarter about considering in person meetings to be really really important that they better be worth it in the sense that if i'm going to meet in person it has to be for something tremendously important a sales negotiation um sort of a a, a mentoring discussion uh, with, with someone or hiring someone um you know a final interview before you're hiring someone actually you know i have this idea that technical interviews actually should be done on audio only and not even video as the first one so that you avoid biases and then the second and third interviews can happen you know in person on video and so on but that's that's just me but my point is i think we would have learned from the fact that many of those things were just bad behaviors a suboptimal behaviors that we just learned from the past from a past where meeting face to face was the only way to establish the truth if you will you know before the rise of the internet before the rise of telephone before the rise of all of these other things it's just that we sort of carried forward that and now we i think we hopefully we're learning better yeah it's pretty fascinating the way you think of it i think to your point sales negotiations probably will never i don't think they're ever going to lose the personal touch especially on a big ticket item because even yeah, even yeah. introverts when they want to buy something that's big ticket it's very difficult for them to be like i'm just going to buy this blindly yes i would argue that no one very few people i mean <laughs> I think very few people will buy like for example a house without talking to somebody. Yeah, absolutely. You just wouldn't do it. Actually even a car, yeah. right? I mean, yeah. I've been wanting to buy a study table for my son and I've like been putting off an online purchase. Yeah. Uh and I'm like waiting for uh, uh the furniture store to <laughs> open and so on. Yeah, I think a big deal people are still going to want to meet in person, customer relationship. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. Not because you have to and I actually agree with you. I don't think it's you have to, but because there's a level of trust that people have when it comes to their vendors. So like Tata obviously services tons of, you know, whatever, thousands of customers. Yep. These customers, they want to know that you're my project manager and you are responsible. And I want to exactly. look you in the eye. I don't want to see an email about what you did. I need yes. you to verbally tell me what you did. And I think that's not going to go away. But I do agree with the, the internal team communications, seeing it get stripped down. You know, I'm curious for you, like, because you mentioned you have, it sounds like you have behavior science on your teams, you have analysts on your teams. You're always trying to, look at the way people function, behave online. Uh, so it's not quite so much like the role's not quite so much, you know, a procuring role because you mentioned before, like, hey, a lot of the stuff gets procured locally. Some of it gets procured centrally. Yeah. And most of the toolkits, like you said, it sounds like you got to give people flexibility to get what they want. So it's not about like procuring the tools. Yep. It sounds like it's more about providing the operator's manual almost like this is how we work remotely. Is that is that more accurate? Yes. The new rituals of work if you will right i mean we actually we i'm increasingly calling it ritual design right ritual design right so you know rituals you know historically why do religions have rituals yeah. right it's a way for you to internalize a set of messages through habituation and you just simply i mean you know there are terrible aspects of you not questioning those rituals obviously yes but in the, in, in the limited context of you working like for example for the engineer who does a safety checklist on a plane before it takes off Ritualization is very very important. Yeah. You don't want that person to be creative. <laughs> They need to follow that checklist. Yeah. Right? So so it's it's just that. Right? So it's just that even in the work that we do there are th- things like for example in when it comes to cybersecurity. Right? I don't want to be creative. I don't want to think like a hacker. I just want to I want a manual by which I can just follow something so that I'm statistically least likely to make a mistake, right? So it's just that the blending of what is ritual design The, the part of the problem is that you know remote work had no kind of ritual design at all whereas the in person workplace had it has a 100 year history of how do we get to office how do we dress how do we talk how we attend meetings and you know how do we communicate and so on it's just that you know we have to invent all of this fresh if you will uh, for for the remote work there you go well ashok i appreciate you joining us today on it visionaries but before you go 
It's time for the lightning round. The lightning round is brought to you by the Salesforce platform, the number one cloud platform, digital transformation of every experience. This is where we ask you questions outside of the world of work so our audience can get to know you a little bit better. Are you ready? Sopa. All right. We did some homework on you and you are, it's very clear. It's very clearly evident. You are a, you're a cooking person. You have a book. You've written a book. It's called the Masala Lab, the science of Indian cooking. What is this book about? So Indian cooking and, and many aspects of Asian cooking in general are, tend to be seen as oriental, exotic, artistic things. Whereas Western cooking is seen, French cooking is seen as a very scientific, uh, precise uh, sort of endeavor and so on. The idea was to break that myth and say that, no, you can think about Indian cooking in the form of algorithms, in the form of day-to-day -day food science that explains why Indian food is delicious and how to, you know, how to make it more delicious and so on. Sort of serve as a you know, 101 manual for either newbies learning to cook or for expert cooks wanting to understand what science and chemistry goes behind, you know, um, how they make their food more delicious. So that's what the book is about. All right, listen, Indian food is famously known. I believe most people that have eaten it know this. It's the most fragrant, aromatic, tons of spices, big, big flavor. Yep. What is your go-to dish? What would you say this is the dish that you have mastered? So the dish that I've spent the most amount of time researching and mastering for the book is biryani. That's a rice dish. Biryani, yeah. It's rice and meat. So it's usually rice and lamb, but it's uh, sometimes rice and chicken or, or even rice and vegetables. But yeah. What does your family think about your biryani? <laughs> so my, uh, my wife, uh, funnily enough, has her favorite biryani actually comes from a small local kitchen here. She's okay with my biryani, but she doesn't think it's the greatest at it. Dang, man. Yeah, listen. Dang. <laughs> Now you're also, it sounds like you're also a musician. Talk a little bit about music. What do you, what do you play? So I play, um, I'm a Indian classical violinist. I've been, I've been learning since the age of seven. Wow. And um, so I actually, to, till when I was about uh, in my university doing engineering, I was still in two minds, whether to go into music full time or, or actually do engineering. <laughs> Uh, but then, you know, like, like most Asian parents, my, my, my father said, say, nah, music, gonna... <laughs> music, you gotta be, you gotta be like, you know, you know, the top 1.01% to make any kind of money. No, just get into this. Uh, and so I kept that as a hobby, uh, but, it, but in a sense, I think it's, uh, so the creativity in music uh, in some sense sort of, you know, uh, it's always helped me. I always feel that it, it sort of helped me think out of the box, even at my work. So in the sense of. I like composing music. I like uh, adapting, you know, remixing music uh, and many of those metaphors that I use in the music that I write. So for example, I, I translate classic rock songs into Sanskrit, which mm. is a very old ancient Indian language, and then redo them in an Indian classical style. And so a lot of those ideas of remixing and so on, I've always found it to be sort of refreshing my mind in terms of how, how I can think out of the box, you know, at work as well. No, that's super fascinating. How many languages are spoken in India? I remember reading this once. It was mind-blowing. Like, but there's Bengali, Tamil. You just mentioned Sanskrit. How many are there? Do you know? Yeah. So, so there are actually uh, well over a thousand languages that have more than um, at least, uh, and I think, I guess, at least 100,000 speakers or so. 1,000 Indian dialects that have at least 100,000 speakers. Yes, 100,000 speakers. But at least about 23 or 24 that have over a million speakers. And uh, there are about uh, 15 or 16 that are official Indian languages, which are the main languages of all of the Indian states. And those often, you know, for example, I, my mother tongue is Tamil. Uh, that's spoken by about 75 million people. So, Okay. How many of those Indian languages do you speak? 
Tell me, you, you, <laughs> so you know Sanskrit because you're translating some of the songs. You know Tamil because that's your family speaking. Yes, and Hindi because it's it's uh, it's predominantly spoken in North India, and I used to live in North India, so so I speak Hindi. And my wife uh, uh, speaks another language, so she speaks Malayalam, so I understand that as well. So I speak about four. That's <laughs> mind-boggling. Mind-boggling. Uh, the average Indian, the average Indian is trilingual. The average South Indian is trilingual. The average North Indian is bilingual, Hindi and typically one other language or English. South Indians usually tend to be English, their language, and one other South Indian language and Hindi. So, so we actually, we actually, it's by the way, we study three languages at school. It's mandated. So you, you pick your English. So, uh, so I, for example, I studied English, uh, Tamil, and Sanskrit. Uh-huh. My son studies uh, English, Hindi right now, and he'll probably add another language next year. So <laughs> this is mind-boggling. Whenever we work with people or have people on the show that live or are from India, it's always mind-boggling to like recognize the size and scope of the country. Of course, Tata is one of the biggest companies in India, if not the biggest. Yep. And to hear like the size and scope of everything that you have to do to make something happen, yep. it, it can be mind-boggling for us uh, over here. Ashok, I appreciate you joining us today, man. It was awesome having you. Thanks for sharing all your perspective on all the things that you do over at Tata and uh, also some of your hobbies. And man, listen, you got to be one of the smartest guys that we've ever had on the show. <laughs> the, the amount of skills, languages, uh, your ascension from a software engineer to heading up all of you know digital workplace practice at this company is pretty impressive. So I want to thank you for sharing your story. Thank you. Absolute pleasure. Absolute pleasure.